Hello, and welcome to Primary Care Anywhere. This is a resident-led podcast out of the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program in beautiful Salt Lake City. My name's Gwen, and this week we're going to talk about smoking cessation. We all have patients who smoke, and we want to help them quit. But how do we actually do that? Well, a large part of smoking cessation has to do with assessing their habits and motivational interviewing. This episode will focus on pharmacologic treatment. Let's frame the discussion with a case. Your first two patients at your continuity clinic are a brother and sister. Their dad was just diagnosed with lung cancer, and they've both decided to quit smoking. Jerry is 46 years old. He's otherwise healthy. He smokes about a pack a day and has his first cigarette first thing when he wakes up. His sister, Linda, is 44. She's smoking just under a half pack a day and has her first cigarette about an hour after waking. She has depression, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. We'll start our discussion with nicotine replacement therapy. Then we'll get into varenicline, bupropion, and finally end with some tips on putting this all together. Hey everybody, my name is Ben Harris. I'm a second year medicine resident and I'll be discussing nicotine replacement therapy or NRT. In general, the goal of NRT is to help avoid withdrawal symptoms and nicotine replacement is just that replacing the nicotine you would otherwise ingest via smoking. It's important to remember, however, that patients who smoke have been titrating their blood nicotine levels very well for the entirety of their habit, avoiding overdose and withdrawal. It can be difficult to get that good of control with these therapies, especially since no one agent produces the same levels of nicotine as a package of cigarettes. As far as the efficacy, studies have shown that successful cessation increases about 10 from about 10% with just behavioral therapies alone, up to 17% with behavioral and pharmacotherapies. We will see throughout the therapy options that it's important to learn a patient's habits, including how many cigarettes a patient smokes, keeping in mind that there are 20 cigarettes in a pack, as well as when the patient first smokes in the day. Also, we should be prescribing both the transdermal patch as well as a short-acting agent, as this has been shown to be more efficacious than one NRT alone. I'll start with our only long-acting option, the transdermal patch. Patients should be placing one patch every 24 hours and replacing this in the morning. They should be switching the site every day to help avoid irritation at that skin. It takes about 30 minutes to several hours to reach peak levels, and this means it is not titratable, meaning you can't place more based on current cravings. In terms of dosing, if a patient smokes greater than 10 cigarettes per day, they should be started on the 21 milligram patch for the first six weeks and then down titrate to the 14 milligram and the seven milligram patch from there. If they smoke less than half a pack of cigarettes a day, they should be started on the 14 milligram patch for the first six weeks and then down titrated to the seven milligram patch thereafter. For short-acting options, often individuals who smoke will use this only as needed, but this can sometimes have the effect of underdosing the nicotine. One way to avoid this is to schedule them every one to two hours while awake and then reduce after the initial six weeks. I'll start up I'll start with the gum. As far as dosing, if the patient smokes more than 25 cigarettes per day, they should be started on the 4 milligram dose. If they smoke less than 25 cigarettes a day, the 2 milligram dose will be sufficient. This can be used every 1 to 2 hours, up to 24 pieces of gum per day. The goal is to reduce the amount of gum used after the initial 6 weeks. The biggest pearl about this is the counseling on how to use it. 
the patient should be chewing the gum until their mouth tingles. Then the gum should be parked between the cheek and the gum. If this isn't done, the nicotine is released too quickly and then metabolized to an inactive form by the liver and is useless to prevent cravings. Ideally, the buccal mucosa would be absorbing all the nicotine from the gum. Next up is the lozenge. Dosing is a little different and it's based on how soon the patient has their first cigarette in the morning. If it's within 30 minutes of awakening, they should be started on the 4 milligram lozenge. If it's after 30 milligram, if it's after 30 minutes, the 2 milligram lozenge will do. The lozenge can be used once every 1 to 2 hours, but no more than 20 lozenges per day. And then they should be down titrated after the initial 6 weeks. It's better to use the lozenges than gum in patients with TMJ disease or dentures, as the gum can exacerbate these problems. Next up is the inhaler. These are essentially just like albuterol inhalers. They contain a mouthpiece and a cartridge with the nicotine inside it. The advantages of the inhaler include not only giving the nicotine, but also somewhat mimic smoking with the behaviors of inhaling a vapor, which is then absorbed mostly by the oral mucosa, with very little of it going to the lungs. Next is nasal spray. This is most the most rapidly absorbed short-acting option, about 10 minutes, and this most closely resembles blood nicotine levels that are found in smoking, though this often comes with worsened side effects to the localized nasal mucosa, rhinorrhea, irritation, sneezing, and different things like this. Finally, there are electronic nicotine delivery systems such as vaping. However, very few studies have been completed on these and results are mixed. Because of this, there are no guidelines that include electronic devices as a way to quit smoking. Finally, we'll talk about the safety profile and side effects. Essentially, the side effects are that of pure nicotine. You have the GI side effects of abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. Patients oftentimes get headaches and they get localized irritation depending on the route. And finally, if some forms are used too closely to bedtime, patients can have insomnia and very vivid dreams. One of the things I've run into in my clinic is that patients are worried about replacing one habit such as smoking with another, such as a dependence on pure nicotine. However, nicotine dependence rarely occurs once patients have quit smoking. Alright, so let's talk about Vraniclean, one of the workhorses of smoking cessation therapy. So, how does this medication work? Well, usually, when nicotine binds to its receptors in the brain, this leads to stimulatory effects on the mesolimbic pathway and dopamine release, which ultimately leads to addiction. So essentially, Vraniclean is a partial agonist of the nicotine receptor, thereby preventing nicotine from binding. But by being a partial agonist, it actually does lead to a bit of dopamine release, which can help decrease the cravings without the reinforcement of the stimulatory pathways that lead to addiction. So how do you administer this medication? And I'll admit this is something that's always kind of confused me, so I hope this will provide some clarity. So ideally, you start this medication about one week before the quit date, and during this week, the medication is slowly uptitrated to the target dose of one milligram twice daily. So you initially advise the patient to take 0.5 milligrams daily for three days and then 0.5 milligrams twice daily for four days. And then on day eight, this is when the patient should totally quit and increase the medication to the full dose of 
one milligram twice daily. Now, once they're at the full dose, it can be continued for up to three to six months. Just a note, this medication is renally cleared, so it needs to be dose adjusted when the creatinine clearance falls below 30. So the most common side effects are nausea and vivid dreams, which can be disturbing to some patients. And usually the slow up titration could be helpful for the nausea. But if patients are still having significant symptoms, you can actually up titrate this medication over a longer period of up to four weeks. In regards to the vivid dreams, one way to get around this is actually to take the medication earlier in the evening or kind of shortly after eating dinner. Now, some of you may have heard of a prior black box warning on this medication for an increasing trend of suicide and suicidal ideations that was noted during the post-marketing surveillance period. And this was actually addressed in the uh, Eagles trial, which was a double-blind trial in 2016 that enrolled about 8,000 smokers motivated to quit, half of whom had stable psychiatric disorders, and they basically randomized them to receive uh, ranicline, bupropion, nicotine patch, or placebo, and they actually found similar rates of neuropsychiatric adverse events between all four groups, at which point the FDA removed the black box warning in 2016. So how efficacious is ranicline? Well, there was a meta-analysis of randomized control trials that actually showed that it tripled your odds of quitting as compared to placebo. And this going back to the data from the Eagle study that I mentioned, uh, where varenicline was compared to bupropion, nicotine patch, and placebo, it actually outperformed bupropion and the nicotine patch with 33% abstinence rate after 12 weeks and 29% after 24 weeks. There was actually another RCT that showed that the absence rates are even higher when you combine this medication with nicotine patch, so it's something to keep in mind. All right, that's all I got. Hey team, I'm going to talk a little bit about bupropion. First off, what is bupropion? Bupropion is an antidepressant class of medication and it works through decreased reuptake of dopamine and norepinephrine in the presynaptic neuronal terminal, as well as through non-competitive nicotine receptor antagonism. It's not exactly clear how this medication helps with smoking cessation, but research indicates that the reduced levels of dopamine and norepinephrine in the central nervous system that typically occur with nicotine withdrawal are abated with the use of bupropion. So we don't know the exact way that it works, but we have a general idea How useful is it in smoking cessation? The effectiveness of bupropion compared to varenicline or nicotine replacement therapy is variable. Evidence suggests it to be slightly less effective than varenicline monotherapy, as well as when you combine varenicline with nicotine replacement therapy. That said, compared with placebo, bupropion does show improvement in abstinence from smoking. In a recent BMJ analysis pooling trials with an average of a 12-week treatment course, Smoking cessation groups treated with bupropion monotherapy saw approximately a 25% abstinence rate. For reference, abstinence in placebo groups was 10 to 15%, and varenicline was just over 30%. This demonstrated a relative risk of abstinence at about 1.62. So it's not a slam dunk type of medication, but smoking cessation is difficult, and there's evidence for the use of bupropion. What type of patient is the appropriate choice for this medication? First off, if the patient has used bupropion in the past, 
tolerated it and saw success with prior cessation attempts, great. I like the philosophy of if it works, it works. Try it out. For someone new to pharmacotherapy, bupropion has some advantages compared to other agents. One, and often overlooked, it's relatively affordable, ranging from $7 to $11 at local pharmacies without insurance. For comparison, if you look at varenicline without insurance, it's typically over $400. Also, bupropion has a generic option, which increases the probability of being covered or at further reduced costs. So who else would we use this for? Though we think of smoking cessation and subsequent weight gain, those who smoke are at greater risk of metabolic syndrome, with an estimated risk of 26% greater than the general public. For folks at or below ideal body weight, there's no association with weight change with the use of bupropion. But for folks that are above ideal body weight, bupropion is associated with weight reduction. How does it work? It's not exactly clear. Again, it's thought to be due to the disruption of dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake, which is related to regulation of appetite, satiety, and feeding behavior. Additionally, if our patient has concomitant depression, Bupropion offers the advantage that it is, as noted, an antidepressant. Medication and pill burden is a barrier to adherence in many of our patients. And if we can help by addressing two conditions at once, that seems like a good option. So this all seems reasonable, but there are some risks to be aware of with bupropion. First off, it lowers the seizure threshold. The absolute risk found in trials was about 0.1%, so relatively low, though this is dose dependent and patients who have a history of seizures or at risk of seizures should avoid this medication. There's less serious side effects, uh, such as nausea, agitation, and migraines that occurred between 0.3 and 1.8% in clinical trials, and non-migraine headaches, dry mouth, nausea, and insomnia that occurred with a frequency of 1% to 10% greater than the placebo arm in clinical trials. At this point, we have a patient, the boxes have been checked, and we've determined that they're a good candidate for this pharmacotherapy. So how do we prescribe it? First off, pick a cessation date. Initiation of therapy should start one to two weeks prior to that date with a minimum of seven days. Start with 150 milligrams of the 12 hour extended release for three days. After the initial three days, increase to 150 milligrams twice a day for a maximum daily dose of 300 milligrams. If the patient tolerates 150 milligrams, but does not tolerate the up titration to 300 milligrams daily, stick with 150 milligrams, as there is data to support that this still has an effect on smoking cessation. Typically, we will treat patients for seven to 12 weeks. However, maintenance therapy can be maintained for up to one year if the patient is tolerating the medication. If no improvement in smoking cessation has been made on bupropion after about seven weeks, it's time to look at using an adjuvant therapy or switching medication classes entirely. Hi, this is Emily, and I'll be picking up where we've left off. We've already heard in detail about the three main options for pharmacotherapies targeting tobacco cessation, nicotine replacement therapy, varenicline or Chantix, and bupropion or Wellbutrin. Now we are seeing our patient in clinic, and they are ready to quit smoking. So how do we choose which therapy to start? First on the agenda is to clear up the comparative efficacy of each type of therapy. Importantly, as you just heard, all of these treatment modalities have been shown to be superior to placebo in achieving smoking cessation. But to really compare each of these successful therapies, we would need head-to-head -head trials, of which there are not many. 
the EAGLE study, which stood for Evaluating Adverse Events in Global Smoking Cessation Study, was one of these head-to-head randomized controlled trials and compared varenicline, bupropion, nicotine patch, and placebo in over 8,000 smokers over six months. The results showed that varenicline had higher quit rates compared to either bupropion or the nicotine patch, both of which were better than placebo. Patients taking varenicline had a 3.6 times increased odds of achieving abstinence compared to placebo, 1.6 increased odds compared to the nicotine patch, and 1.7 times increased odds compared to bupropion. But this study just compared varenicline to a single nicotine replacement product, and there's not enough data currently to establish that varenicline is better than dual nicotine replacement. So overall, based on this data, general consensus is that varenicline and dual nicotine replacement therapy are more efficacious at achieving smoking cessation than bupropion or a single nicotine replacement method. And now that we've got a tentative hierarchy in mind for which medication may work the best in our patient, we need to consider other factors that would disrupt this pecking order. First thing to consider is a patient's prior experience with a particular pharmacotherapy, both in terms of efficacy and side effects. Another thing to consider is the interaction between patient comorbidities and side effect profile of each medication. A lot of this has already been covered when we discussed each medication option individually, so I'll just summarize it here. As you know, bupropion is an antidepressant, and this medication choice may be useful in patients with untreated depression symptoms. It may also be a good choice when someone is wary of the weight gain they may experience after smoking cessation, as bupropion has been shown to reduce this temporarily. The one time bupropion would not be considered a good option is in patients with a seizure disorder because the medication lowers the seizure threshold. In terms of specific patient populations, all medications described here have been studied specifically in patients with cardiovascular disease and none are associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular events. Also, all of these medications are considered efficacious and safe in patients with psychiatric illness, though you should expect slightly lower overall success rates in these patients. And just so you're aware, when varenicline was first approved, there was initial concern for increased neuropsychiatric side effects and cardiovascular adverse effects with the medication. However, more recent data suggests this is not the case, so I'll just leave it at that. Lastly, I think it's important to discuss the differential cost of these pharmacotherapies, as this is often what the decision comes down to in the real world. Notably, varenicline is quite expensive, costing about $500 a month if uninsured, and some insurance plans will have large copays on the medication, which are not affordable to patients. Therefore, as Alex mentioned earlier, for patients who are uninsured or underinsured, bupropion may be the best option because the medication is available generic attainable as low as $7 per month. Also, did you know the cost of nicotine patches out-of-pocket could be $50 to $80 a month? Most insurance companies will cover these costs, but if not, a quick plug for 1-800-QUIT-NOW, which is a national program that can provide eligible patients with free nicotine replacement products. So now that we understand all the risks and benefits for each type of therapy, we can use shared decision-making to find the right choice for each patient we see. Also, it is definitely reasonable to try doubling up on these methods, for example, starting both varenicline and nicotine patch. In fact, in a small study of 435 smokers, this dual approach resulted in 49% smoking abstinence compared to 33% in patients randomized to varenicline and a placebo patch. That was a lot of great info. 
let's apply it to our case. Jerry opts for varenicline. He sets his quit date for one week and wants to start the medication today. The dosing starts with a ramp up, which you can find in our show notes. He also wants to do nicotine replacement therapy. Since he's smoking a pack a day, we'll do a 21 milligram patch that'll apply once daily. For additional relief, he opts for lozenges. Since he has his first cigarette, first thing when he gets up, we'll do a four milligram lozenge that he can take every one to two hours, not to exceed 20 a day. Linda's a little bit worried about her insurance covering the cost of Ranaclean. Since she has obesity and depression, bupropion could be a good choice for her. We'll do 150 milligrams once daily for three days, followed by 150 milligrams twice daily. For nicotine replacement therapy, she also wants to do a patch. Since she's smoking under a half pack a day, we'll start with 14 milligrams that she can take once a day. For additional relief, she wants to do gum. We'll do two milligram tablets and counsel her to chew the gum until she feels a tingling sensation, then move it over between her cheek and her gums. I don't know about you guys, but I feel a lot more prepared to counsel my patients on smoking cessation and prescribe appropriate pharmacologic therapies. I hope you do too. That's all we got for this week. This has been Primary Care Anywhere. Thanks for tuning in. 